Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone, Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And it has been a while since we've had a good old-fashioned catch-up. And I think we should do that in the sorting chat. You know, I think that's a great idea. Definitely not the result of uh, one of us not knowing what to do for the sorting chat this week. (laughs) Well, Marcel, you have to go first then, so tell me what's new with you. No, it says right here in the script, you're so right, Hannah. How are you? What have you been up to? It's been a weird summer, hasn't it? It has been a weird summer, but what's new with me is that it is currently early August when we are recording, and today was my first day back at work. (laughs) After four weeks of vacation... And I spent the morning reading and organizing my email inbox while resisting the urge to have a temper tantrum because I don't want to do it. (laughs) And uh, that's my sort of inside view at what your professor is secretly going through. Oh, that's so good. (laughs) A real behind the music moment for sure. So I have a month now to totally design the courses I'm going to be teaching this fall and ideally design them in such a way that they are ready for moving back online if that turns out to be necessary. And I have absolutely no idea how I'm going to do that. And I don't want to cue temper tantrum here. I don't want to. So why don't we do the fun part of pedagogy instead, which is just thinking about it theoretically instead of actually doing it. (laughs) I love this. I have nothing but the deepest of sympathy and empathy for all of my peers and colleagues who are getting ready to teach in September. I am so glad that I will be on leave because everything that I have been hearing about the preparation to go back to campus sounds completely cuckoo bananas and very, very poorly judged. (laughs) If there is indeed a brutal fourth wave in Canada, it will be Alberta's fault because our cartoon villain of a premier has decided that a positive COVID-19 test result doesn't require isolation. Oh, you tested positive for the the virus that has shut down the globe for the last year and a half? It it would be cool if you stayed home, but you don't have to. Don't worry about it. 
get out there and spit in people's mouths as is your right as an Albertan. You'll be safe, Marcel, because you'll be in confinement. So obviously locked in a dark room with the windows covered with curtains, not allowed to see anybody as is best. Yeah, so that's really good. I'll be amping up for year three of pandemic pedagogy and trying to figure out how to go back into a classroom now that I am, and I say this with total seriousness, completely insane. (laughs) What, you mean you didn't just spend the last, like, year and a half to two years lounging around? Becoming more sane? No, I didn't didn't spend it becoming more (laughs) sane. But I feel like this does put me in a pretty good position to think about whether being uh, locked away by yourself for an extended period of time makes you better at teaching? How topical. Is that a good segue? That's a very good segue. Beautifully done. So elegant. Yes. Well, while we are amping up for this ambivalent autumn, we can just slide right into revision, the segment where we go back over our notes and get ready to learn some more. In our previous episode on pedagogy, we looked at what pedagogy means, (laughs) unsurprisingly, (laughs) and we considered teaching methods in relation to the various teachers we encounter at Hogwarts. The idea for this episode, however, came from a simple premise, maybe even a simpler time? I don't know. Anyway, the premise being, Barty Crouch Jr. as Professor Moody is a great teacher, but he's also a literal Nazi? So how do we reconcile this in relation to pedagogy? (laughs) I hate to be that guy, but he is, in fact, a figurative Nazi. But otherwise, I am (laughs) with you. You know what? I deserve that because I nitpicked about sentient in our last recording, and this is fine. Yeah, yeah. So... I'm really interested in this conversation about the quality of Professor Moody's pedagogy. But we should probably start with a quick review of what pedagogy is. So we did an episode on pedagogy as part of our discussion of book three, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. In that episode, we defined pedagogy as referring to the way you teach and the philosophy behind your method. We also noted that there are a lot of different styles of pedagogy because there are a lot of different ways of teaching and a lot of different types of learners. And we kind of took an overview of these different approaches to pedagogy and these different types of learners by placing various Hogwarts teachers on a character alignment chart based on their teaching styles. It was pretty whimsical. It was very whimsical, yes. The character alignment chart, in case you've forgotten, comes from Dungeons & Dragons. It's a tool to help identify a character's relationship to good and evil, as well as law and order. Yeah, and we tried to sort of redefine what we think of as good and evil and law and order in the context of the classroom. So, We put Remus Lupin in the category of neutral good because he prioritizes his students' well-being in both his teaching and his enforcement of Hogwarts rules, whereas we put Hagrid in the category of chaotic neutral because he really wants to impart his knowledge and love of magical creatures to his students, but his choices also just happen to kind of put students in danger sometimes. But not on purpose. (laughs) Unclear. Anyway, Marcel, will you remind me where we placed Barty Crouch Jr. masquerading as Professor Moody on this alignment chart? We put Barty Crouch Jr. masquerading as Professor Moody in the category chaotic good because he seems to genuinely want to prepare the students for the real world. By contrast, where Lupin had a lesson plan and followed a textbook, Professor Moody, as we encounter him, seems to teach from his own lived experience. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there appears to be a significant investment, at least up front, in students actually learning. Like he wants his students to thrive. Again, asterisk. <laughs> he does not. But he seems to. <laughs> Unclear. <laughs> and his his method for helping his students to thrive is really not structured by institutional norms or expectations. Indeed. Indeed it is not. It's pretty rule-breaking. But effective? You know what? That's conversation for owls. Before we get ahead of ourselves and think too much about this question of whether he's a good teacher, why don't we just sort of go over a bit, like, what do we know about him Mm -hmm. as a teacher? Like, what do the students say about Professor Moody and what do we think? Of Professor Moody. Yeah. So all of the students who Harry is friendly with seem to think that he's pretty great. And so, you know, as as we know, Harry can only be trusted so far <laughs> as our narrator. So all of his opinions kind of need to be taken with a grain of salt. But uh, at least insofar as we hear what other students think about him, he's a he's a pretty good he's a pretty good teacher. Yeah, and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that his class is really practical and applied. And I think that's both sort of Harry's bias because he is a student who learns better through doing than he does through reading. And so classes that ask him to do a lot of heavy theoretical reading. You know, he doesn't thrive in that environment, but he learns well by just practicing a thing over and over again until he gets the hang of it. But I also think in particular in Defense Against the Dark Arts classes, his bias is towards the practical because he literally is going to have to use these skills by the end of every school year. (laughs) And he's like, maybe figured that out at this point. Because of the Triwizard Tournament, he has to use those skills all semester, all year long. <laughs> yeah, like they are coming in real handy immediately. <laughs> but he's also seen from the past three years, you know, you're not going to get to the end of the school year and have a sudden surprising need to know how to read a crystal ball. Like Voldemort's not going to like trap you in a closet and be like, read my palm or die. <laughs> But the things you learn in Defense Against the Dark Arts, you will probably going to have to apply pretty soon. So, you know, assuming that Harry understands how narrative works, he probably has a more urgent investment in the outcomes of this particular class. So I get why that attention to, like, almost a sort of brutal practicality would make the students like his class. Mm-hmm. I also think that he is in some ways, an unusually attentive professor. I think we have a lot of examples of professors who don't seem to be paying very close attention to, you know, how what they're doing impacts the students, to what's going on in the students' own lives. And for better or for worse, Moody is paying attention. He notices when Harry is getting bullied by Malfoy. He notices when his lesson really disturbs Neville. He figures out why Harry might want to be hiding from Snape when he's making his way back from the prefect's bathroom. And so he is attentive to what's going on. And I think, as is not uncommon with a lot of kids, I think it's pretty easy to mistake attention for good attention. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. So what do we think about Professor Moody? I'm going to, I, I want to start. <laughs> because whenever I try to separate out, like, what do I think about Moody from what does Harry tell me to think about Moody? The first thing that comes to mind is the fact that he... The child abuse? The child abuse. He transfigures Draco Malfoy into a ferret and then bounces him up and down in the corridor, which, you know, if you are Harry, that's probably really funny. But it also kind of shouldn't be because that's a peer of yours. And even though that peer is an asshole, this teacher just turned him into a um, a rodent and is and is physically assaulting him. And the text very clearly, I really made note of this, this read through, is that when Draco is transformed 
back, the text specifies that he is affected both by the humiliation of the experience, but also the physical pain. He is in physical pain from what this teacher has just done to him. And that is hilarious to Harry. But I don't think any of us should enjoy watching our teachers physically abuse our classmates. No. Indeed. Yeah, I am also, again, as an adult and a teacher, my view on Moody feels different. And the other thing that I feel very worried about is any teacher who gets his students into a classroom and says, the school says I'm not allowed to tell you this, so don't tell anybody else what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know that's fraught because we can't trust institutions or governments to have the best interest of students at heart. Sometimes what's happening in a classroom is radical in an important way, but my gut instinct is when an adult man says to children, I'm going to show you something illegal. Don't tell your parents that that's bad. Yeah, I think that like that's a reasonable premise. Like there can be exceptions to it being bad. But as a general rule, I'm not supposed to show you this, but I'm going to anyway. Don't tell anyone is dubious. Yeah. What I will say is that however I feel about his methods which is bad. I feel bad about his methods, for the most part. He's not only attentive, he's also effective. He is good at teaching students how to do things. Definitely. And that, I think, is the really interesting question of him. Like, why is this guy good at teaching? Let's put a pin in that question, because hopefully some of the stuff that we talk about in Transfiguration class will help us to answer it when we come back to it in Owls. Fantastic. Confusingly enough, we're now going to learn about how people learn by discussing Defense Against the Dark Arts in Transfiguration class. I love how meta our segments get when we are doing episodes about pedagogy. (laughs) (laughs) I have the word meta in the script later on, too, so. Oh, that's exciting. Marcel, before you get into the theory here, I think the listeners will want to know a bit more about the book you read for this episode. (laughs) Yeah, this was a weird coincidence. You know how sometimes you'll buy a book that you think looks really interesting, but then also forget about it for like years? Yeah, every day. I picked up this book about pedagogy um, because I thought that it might be useful in thinking about and figuring out my own pedagogy, but obviously I never read it. But the universe works in wild and wacky ways because, for some reason, I happened upon it after we decided to do an episode on pedagogy focusing on Professor Moody. And the title of this book, dear listeners, is Pedagogy, the Question of Impersonation. So it seemed relevant. It's relevant if it is a book about how we become better at teaching when we're in disguises. Is that what it is about? (laughs) Kind of, kind of. Okay, so this book is a collection of essays that emerged out of a conference on pedagogy, and all of the essays in it wrestle with the notion of impersonation as it relates to teaching. So unlike our last episode on pedagogy, where we talked about a variety of different teachers and their teaching methods, Today, we're going to focus on the idea that teaching itself is always a performance and that the teacher is always a role or a masquerade. Or an impersonation. In other words, there is no real Professor Hannah McGregor or Instructor Marcel Cosman any more than there is a real Professor Moody. Are you saying that the teacher is a role or that when I am Professor McGregor, I am playing the role of Professor McGregor? Yes. (laughs) I think we can argue that the teacher is a trope 
And that Professor McGregor is a role that you play based on that trope. Okay. So the idea, I think, is that there's no such thing as an authentic self when we teach. We are always mediated versions of ourselves. So Jane Gallup, the book's editor, suggests that we think about this idea of an authentic self or, quote-unquote, the personal, insofar as it relates to teaching, in light of how Judith Butler talks about performing gender. So when we bring our, quote-unquote, authentic selves into the classroom as teachers, we're still performing ourselves using a set of scripts Because as teachers, we are always already in a role that is socially and historically constituted. Okay, this makes sense that whether we are trying to fit into or subvert the trope of the teacher, we're still sort of circling around it, right? So whatever the performance is, it it is a performance like what Butler says about gender, that the ways that we perform gender are based on social and historical contexts of what constitutes those genders. So whether we're trying to sort of conform to them or resist them, we're still engaging them. Mm-hmm. Precisely. And those contexts are like deeply culturally and historically specific. So like what our culture considers masculine or feminine changes over time. This is my favorite example is the historical shift in the color pink, which (laughs) used to be used to dress baby boys because pink was close to red, which was a more masculine color, and blue was like the color of the Virgin Mary. (laughs) And now it's totally the opposite, and you dress a boy in pink and people are like, what are you doing to your boy child? Yes. Ruining! So it's like, We're making these choices about our genders and our gender performances, but we're basically choosing from, like, maybe a set of predetermined options or, like, we're choosing in a way that is going to be read according to current scripts. Mm -hmm. So it's like you're never choosing in a vacuum. You're never performing your gender in a vacuum. You're never performing your identity in a vacuum. It's always in this context that is shaping it and framing it. Yes, exactly. All right, so I see how this fits with the idea that as teachers, you know, we can be being our authentic selves, quote-unquote authentic, and at the same time be, like, playing the role of teacher when we teach. So how does that connect back to teaching as impersonation? Yeah, so Gallup explains that, you know, the whole premise of both the conference and the book was supposed to be an exploration of the relationship between pedagogy and the quote-unquote personal. But a through line about impersonation became, in her words, surprisingly appropriate and more effective for unifying the various papers and conversations. Love a surprise emergent theme. Yes, exactly. Over the course of the various chapters in the book, we come to see that impersonation allows us to think about performing our roles as either teachers or students or both, for those of us who have been student teachers, as well as about the kind of nefarious parts of teaching, so like the social engineering and monitoring that occurs under the guise of liberal education, for example. We'll come back to that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I want to come back to that. I'm really interested in what impersonation and monitoring have to do with each other. Mm-hmm. So in her introduction to the book, Gallup draws on Butler's analysis of gender to argue that in order to understand impersonation, we need to think about performance and impersonation as, quote, constructed somehow other than in opposition to authentic, end quote. I'm going to say that back because it's convoluted. Constructed somehow other than in opposition to authentic. So we don't want to be thinking of impersonation as the opposite of authenticity. Precisely. Yes, that's exactly right. We have to find some other way to think about the relationship between impersonation and authenticity. Similarly, Madeline Grumet's chapter in the collection points out that among the many definitions of the word person, one meaning appears in and of itself to be a dichotomy, 
So she quotes this definition of person from the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary. Quote, The living body of a human being, either A, the actual body as distinct from clothing, etc., or from the mind or soul, or B, the body with its clothing and adornment as presented to the sight of others. So Grummet refers to this dichotomy as A, flesh, or B, fashion, which I find very charming. (laughs) Flesh or fashion? (laughs) She then chooses fashion over flesh to argue that, quote, the personal is a performance, an appearance contrived for the public that enables us to perform the play of pedagogy, end quote. This all makes perfect sense to me. Like, I am absolutely in that school of annoying post-structuralism where I don't think that there is an authentic internal self that can be separated out from our many contexts and interactions and interdependencies and influences. When we are performing a role, it's not like, oh, it's time for me to put on my teacher hat and then when I take it off, it's the real me. It's like, no, when you are teaching, you are performing teacher. Yes, exactly. And there's a lot of Hannah in Professor McGregor. But since Professor McGregor is necessarily a role that you perform, the Hannah who we see performing Professor McGregor is also herself a performance. Absolutely. It's similar to um, code switching, Right. This idea that like we perform differently in different contexts and that doesn't mean that like one is authentic and the other isn't. It's just like we shift in different contexts. Precisely. This also helpfully reminds us that like when we enter into the classroom, we are entering into a space that already has like predetermined power structures and hierarchies. Like there's this inherent hierarchy in the relationship between student and teacher. And I might really like my students and want to be like, hey, hey, everybody, I'm just a guy. Check out my finger guns and my elbow patches. But I can't actually be my student's friend (laughs) while I'm also grading them because that's just not how that role works. Yeah. And it's very complicated to get into, but Also, as the person with the most power in that relationship, it's also not up to us to decide whether or not we can be friends. That's an unfair burden to impose on the students. So even if the students want to be our friends, it would be irresponsible (laughs) of us to be like, yeah, power doesn't mean anything. In the structured context of the classroom, Right. That a performance that attempts to obfuscate or hide the realities of the institution that we're all operating in isn't a liberatory act as much as a lot of white male professors would like to pretend that it is, as opposed to like equipping your students with the ability to understand and navigate the nature of the institution through like greater transparency rather than just pretending it's not there. Exactly. There are productive and generative ways to question and subvert and make visible the hierarchy that structures the relationship between teachers and students and their respective roles. So this points me to another one of the chapters in the book, which is an essay by Arthur Frank, who, speaking of structuralism and post-structuralism, draws on work by Roland Barthes and Irving Goffman, arguing that, quote, the pedagogy of the lecture is intensely personal, yet the lecture works precisely by concealing the personal essence. Stated another way, this is still part of the quote, the personal element is effective only if it is concealed, end quote. The idea, I think, being that Our lectures are intensely personal, like the self that prepares the lecture is deeply embedded in the lecture that we then give later. But the students, they're not coming to class for our personal hot takes on (laughs) grammar. (laughs) They may benefit from our personal hot takes, but like the point, the point of the lecture isn't to give them insight into our own idiosyncrasies. Yeah, okay, this makes sense to me. It's like 
the expectation that I am an expert and am like imparting knowledge depends on me eliding the way that the knowledge I choose to impart is like a deeply personal set of choices. I designed this class and I decided what you're going to read and I decided what assignments you're going to do and I decided what isn't worth our time and that's all profoundly personal. Is Arthur Frank saying when he says that the personal element is effective only if it's concealed. Like, does he mean that the expectation of expertise will be undermined if we foreground the personal? Or that, like, we're actually worse at teaching when we're more personal? I think it has more to do with the relationship between teacher and student because he also talks about how because of our contractual obligation as teachers and our students' contractual obligations as students and the weekly meetings, like the fact that these lectures or classes are a part of our regularly scheduled programmed lives, they're necessarily mundane. And so they're probably not going to be as riveting as like a one-off lecture that you might go to see about something that is like really personally exciting to you. So the relationship between teacher and student needs to be mundane. And I think his point is that making apparent the ways in which your lectures are deeply personal to you does not necessarily improve the learning experience for the student. Yeah, yeah, because they don't need to care about me. They sure don't. I want to read you another thing that our buddy Arthur Frank says. So he also he also talks a lot in this chapter about Lacanian psychoanalysis, which I I don't totally grasp. I I pretended that I did during my master's, but I I'm too old to pretend now. So I've never pretended. Maybe one day we'll have a Lacanian on, or maybe we never will. <laughs> okay, so Frank here says. In classroom terms, the student needs to learn that if she sees the professor as either the subject presumed to know, that's a Lacanian psychoanalysis term, or as a windbag who assigns too much reading, both are her fantasies. So also recognizing that the relationship that the student has to the class and to the teacher is also a performance or a fantasy. Like it's it's also not quote unquote real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The students are also performing a role and are also interpreting the role that the teacher is performing. That's why you can still learn from somebody even when they're a Nazi in disguise. <laughs> yes. The pieces are coming together. They are absolutely. They absolutely are coming together. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So can we think about teaching as impersonation and performance in, like, playful ways, rather than just being like, eh, it's always a performance? <laughs> yes. There are a number of examples sort of scattered throughout the book of the various authors reflecting on when this happened. And what I would say seems to me to unify those different examples is the fact that they they happen on their own. These are sort of reflections that the authors have about these surprising exchanges in class. I mean, that's the best part about teaching, right? Is the is the surprise moments that you can't have planned for. So there are those playful ways, but what about more exploitative subversions of that hierarchy? Like impersonation and performance, which feel fun to me, are not always positive, right? Absolutely, yeah. So 
In recent years, we've seen a lot of educational institutions trying to find ways to address issues of sexual harassment and sexual assault, both between student peers and also between uh, students and teachers. So this is a, a really big issue with a lot of moving parts, and it's absolutely relevant to conversations about performance and impersonation and power, but it definitely exceeds the material that we're working with, namely Harry Potter. Fortunately, <laughs> we can also think about impersonation and performance in relation to other fun, nefarious topics like social engineering and reproduction, a topic that is super relevant to Harry Potter and to thinking about Professor Moody in particular. Okay, so I need you to tell me what social engineering is. So when I say social engineering, I mean a method by which institutions attempt to encourage conformity or encourage norms or encourage certain cultural mores among the people who are installed in that institution, whether they're there voluntarily or not. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that makes sense. So like the way that we, for example, teach students how to behave in the classroom, not always explicitly, but through modeling our own performances and maybe designing our classes in such a way that students who don't conform to our expectations like fail or drop out because they can't thrive there. And then you can sort of shrug your shoulders and be like, oh, I guess just some students just don't do well in university. Yeah, very much. So the contributor to the book who tackles this part of the relationship between pedagogy and the personal and impersonation, etc., is Susan Miller. Her chapter actually closes the collection. And she urges those of us teaching in the humanities to understand the term pedagogy as a specific construction. She explains that our professions come out of 19th century cultural pedagogies that were designed to colonize mass populations in Britain, America, by which I assume she also means Canada, because that's usually how that works, and India. Yeah, this really makes me think of conversations that have been happening around the inheritance of the residential school system in Canada and a lot of people saying we shouldn't call them schools because calling them schools obfuscates what they actually were, which is functionally like prison camps for children. And then there has been a response from a lot of people saying like, no, we need to call them schools because we have to recognize like those of us who work in schools now have to recognize that we are part of this system. But like, yeah, they were bad schools, but they were schools because schools are part of the carceral system and schools are part of settler colonialism. And we have inherited that history and we have to grapple with it. Yeah, very, very much. So this book was published in, I think, 93. So this is like definitely pre a lot of the major conversations that are happening now. So Miller draws on work by historians Terry Eagleton and Ian Hunter to show how, quote, the study of vernacular texts, or what we today call the humanities, was established at this particular moment, the 19th century, in England, India, and America, to isolate and create a new class identity built for new students in new mass education, end quote. Basically explaining that what we think of today as the humanities and like liberal arts education, etc., is actually the grandchild of a very specifically constructed effort to shape and create an entire class identity. She further explains that the texts that were used to educate this new class were selected specifically to encourage that class's reproduction. So by seeing themselves in these secular texts, the students would be able to see themselves or perceive themselves as having a class identity and then to be willing to reproduce that class identity. Okay, so the class identity we're talking about here is middle class, right? She doesn't say. <laughs> she doesn't call it the middle class, but... <laughs> 
I suspect that it's a bourgeois education that we're talking about, like a middle class education that is about having people sort of identify with middle classness. And the reason I say I suspect that is because a lot of literary critics have pointed to how the sort of canonization of certain kinds of literature, particularly certain kinds of realist novels Mm, mm -hmm. in the English classroom, has been part of a sort of longer normalization of the bourgeois subject as like the definition of the human. And that's how we have ended up with this sort of cultural education that teaches us to identify with like a very narrow kind of subjectivity. And that narrow subjectivity, for the most part, is like middle class or upper class men. You know, this is how we end up with arguments that like Hamlet is a universal (laughs) story about humanity um, when it's actually about a depressed Danish prince who's mad because his mom got remarried after his dad died. That doesn't feel universal to me. But like this canon ends up functioning in such a way that it is teaching students what to identify with so that they become invested in the reproduction of that identity. Yes. So they're also being taught to impersonate. Yes. I think you're absolutely right. It it has to be a bourgeois middle-class identity because that class identity becomes the purported foundation of these various democratic countries, right? So it's important to recognize that this pedagogical technology, as Miller calls it, was moral and not in the service of freedom for all, (laughs) and that (laughs) its purpose was and is still to replace, quote, the home as the primary civic unit of society, end quote. Because it's easier to control your population when you send everyone to school and you say the government are in control of what gets taught in that school system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So educational institutes are sites of control and social engineering. And so the versions of the teacher that we are performing are always embedded in these institutions that are invested in social engineering. So because we can't get out of this context, any attempt to pretend as a teacher that we're not in this context and that I am not part of this institution and that I am just your friendly pal is likely to be more harmful than helpful, right? Precisely. Yeah. So Miller really rejects the idea of the personal. She describes the personal as being, and I quote, a particular and specific fiction, which I find uh, very poignant. And she also rejects the possibility of what she calls, quote, relinquishing classroom oppression, end quote, or even the idea that we as teachers can share authority with our students because, and these are her words again, such equalizations reinstate unproblematized portrayals of student and teacher as merely taking roles that they might easily individually forego because we can't forego them. We are socially and historically constituted and The students cannot choose to forego them because if they do, like if a student comes in and is like, fuck you, (laughs) you're not my mom, (laughs) they're correct, but they are also not engaging (laughs) (laughs) with the material. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're right. I'm not their mom. But this does remind me of one time when a former mentor of mine was arguing that the rise of Me Too and conversations about power and possible forms of harm in the classroom was actually disproportionately victimizing instructors because they were being hyper-surveilled by their students for appropriate behavior. And she said that 
it was a misunderstanding of how the university worked to think that professors had more power than students and that, in fact, students had all of the real power, which is just a wild claim to make Yeah, in an institution where one person gets to fail the other person. Like, I can't wrap my head around that claim in any structural way because it's not how school works. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really nice idea. And if only students weren't going into massive amounts of debt in order to not fail classes, I think that that could possibly be an interesting conversation to have. But at the end of the day, one person is making upwards of a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. I wish. Well, maybe not you, Hannah, but let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this gets really complicated by the identity of the professor, of course. And I think that we have seen some, like, sinister rise of surveillance, for example, of women faculty, queer faculty, particularly women of color faculty, where students will do things like, record their lectures secretly and then, you know, post them on right-wing message boards. So the complexities of power in the classroom are informed by more than just the fact of, like, the teacher and the student, right? That you are bringing multiple identities into the classroom and that power gets a lot more complex. And I think at the same time, it doesn't belie the fact that the institution itself is structured in such a way that pretending that power doesn't play into those relationships will always be a falsehood. Mm -hmm. I think that there's definitely a reason why it is specifically marginalized instructors who are more vulnerable to these kinds of surveillance attacks than, say the many, many white male professors who have gotten away with a lot for a long time. And more likely to be the white male professors who want to pretend there's no power in the classroom. Okay, well, speaking of white male professors, do we feel ready to address why Barty Crouch Jr. impersonating Alistair Moody may make such an effective teacher? Yes. As Moody would say, it's time to throw away the books and get our hands dirty by applying what we've learned in owls. Ooh, hands just filthy with owl droppings. Gross. (laughs) Okay, before we tackle this, I feel like we need to acknowledge that the Goblet of Fire requires an incredible amount of suspension of disbelief. More, I think... Than any of the other books. (laughs) That's quite the claim. This is is the hill that I will die on. I am ultimately not sure that I buy the idea that after living in Azkaban for 14 years, Barty Crouch Jr. was able to just slide back into society and convince everyone that he is a completely different person. Yeah, I mean, Dumbledore in particular, who supposedly knows Moody and should have been able to to notice something. I think part of what's going on here is that we're supposed to think that Moody himself being erratic, unpredictable, and unstable makes it easier for Barty Crouch Jr. to perform that role, that he's sliding into a role that he's more equipped for because he is also perhaps not particularly stable, but it's a lot to swallow that somebody could be (laughs) impersonating somebody who Dumbledore apparently knows. And has known for decades. I mean, maybe Dumbledore (laughs) knew the entire time. That would be pretty, pretty classic Dumbledore. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past him. Okay, so Dumbledore's shenanigans aside, I want to start off by thinking about how much of... Being a teacher at Hogwarts, period, is just being at the front of the classroom. 
One, we have no evidence that there's any qualifications required to teach at the school. No, indeed. We have evidence that there are no qualifications. Like, there's no sense that being a teacher is a thing you have to train to do, qualified to do. Again, this, you know, we don't see this because it's not part of Harry's journey, but the first time we ever see teachers getting evaluated in any way is by umbrage. And that is positioned as being an outrageous overreach of governmental authority. The idea that, like, checking if people are teaching a subject is a, like, outrageous overreach tells us something about (laughs) the general standard of pedagogy in Hogwarts. So on one level, there is just this idea that, like, he's as good a teacher as anybody else because he's just, you know, stepped into the role of teacher. But I think this idea of impersonation gets us at something a little bit more complex, which is that he is Barty Crouch Jr. performing the role of Professor Moody, performing the role of a Hogwarts teacher. But if he was really Professor Moody, he would still be Professor Moody performing the role of a Hogwarts teacher. And so in both cases, his relationship to Harry and the other students, insofar as he is teaching them, would be a performance or an impersonation. And so even though he is disguising himself with nefarious intentions, the fact that he is impersonating someone doesn't immediately disqualify him from being an effective teacher because all teachers are impersonating. Yeah, absolutely. You just summed up transfiguration class in a single thought. So this then leads me to my question, which is a little bit less analytical. (laughs) (laughs) Good. I want to know, do we think that Barty Crouch Jr. had a calling to be a teacher? I don't really believe in callings. And I don't think we have enough evidence to know one way or t'other. But is there some sign that he is a good teacher or somebody who is interested in teaching? And so I'm trying to think, I'm trying to go back to the text here and be like, what are the moments where we see him engage pedagogically? And the, the moment that really stands out for me, particularly because I think it parallels so well what made Lupin look like a good teacher is that he cares about Neville, who, like, as our sort of quote-unquote bad student figure, right, it's the person who struggles to learn, how he is treated by professors becomes kind of a litmus test of the degree to which they are or are not interested in teaching itself. And we see Moody, like, caring about Neville, like paying attention to Neville, noticing that he's upset by a lesson, singling him out for being good with herbology, providing him with a book, all of this stuff, right? You know, this brings me back to what I was saying in revision about attention, which is that Moody does a pretty good impression of a good teacher. Mm -hmm. Yes. Lupin also does a pretty good impression of a good teacher. So what's the difference here? The difference is what they're using that impression to accomplish. Right. Lupin is using that performance of attention, that performance of interest, in order to understand his students better and try to ensure that they learn things. hmm Moody is using that performance of interest functionally to groom students. So he is using his position to manipulate students to inform their behavior in a way that is ultimately aimed at harming them. I think this gets us into tricky territory around this idea of impersonation and performance because the harm that Moody is ultimately doing is 
not part of his performance, but it underpins it. You know, it might not be the same as the personal as it's discussed in the pedagogical theorists that you introduced us to, but there's something else, right? There's something deeper underneath the performance that is informing what makes his pedagogy on the surface appear good, but in fact is insidious. So what this is making me think of, Hannah, is a conversation that you shared with me, conversation that you had had with your friend Bart, who was remarking about how much longer than necessary Moody's whole endeavor was to get Harry to Voldemort's cauldron of trouble, we'll call it. Cauldron of trouble. Like, it's absolutely absurd that he's like, okay, I'm going to befriend Neville and I'm going to give him a herbology book. And that herbology book is going to contain the information that Harry needs in order to succeed at the second trial because I need Harry to be at the front of the pack when they're going through the labyrinth so that he's the first one. Like, this is absurd. Just make a textbook into a port key and <laughs> hand it to him. Done. So here's why I feel so compelled to ask about Barty Crouch Jr. wanting to be a teacher. Oh my God, do you think that he, he drags the plan out so that he can just spend <laughs> the school year teaching? Nothing else makes any logical sense. I totally agree that the whole purpose behind the plan is bad and it taints all of the good that he does as a teacher. And yet... I can't think of a single other logical reason why it would make sense to prolong the process of getting Harry to Voldemort until a specific date that is part of an international, like it's the Wizard Olympics. <laughs> Marcel, this is why I love making a podcast with you. <laughs> I just love how your brain works so much. I just need everyone to know that the devastating fun facts this time around are just going to be all stories of Barty Crouch Jr. in Azkaban, like teaching his cellmates various texts. Okay, I love this theory for a lot of reasons, both because it it accounts for a, what I think is a really significant narrative gap in this book, but also because it helps to make sense of Barty Crouch Jr. slash Moody as a character in a way that doesn't reduce him down to just being a sort of over-the-top comical villain. Like, we don't have to believe that everything he does is bad because he's bad. And I think that that framework of, of thinking about performance can help us, again, answer that original question, like, how is this terrible figurative Nazi kind of an effective teacher in some ways? Because he is a, a complex character, but also because... You can be both a fake teacher and a good teacher at the same time. You can be an ill-intentioned teacher and an effective teacher at the same time. You know, you can be an asshole and an effective teacher at the same time. And you can be a really good person with really good intentions and a terrible teacher at the same time. Cough, cough, Hagrid, cough. Bless him. <laughs> right? That that division between performance or impersonation and the personal reminds us that, like, what you intend really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter all that much or doesn't necessarily determine the effectiveness of what happens in the classroom. Yes. 
We see this in real life whenever a beloved teacher is accused of something shitty, right? That there are always going to be students who are like, I don't believe it. I took a class with that person. That person was amazing. They were a great teacher. Like, there are always going to be people who learn well, irrespective of the goodness of the person who is doing the teaching. And sometimes when you are a boy wizard who learns better through doing, truly your best teacher is the evil snake man trying to murder you. That's the moral of the story, right? That's the moral of the story. (laughs) Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to NotSorryWorks.com or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Oh, Witch Please. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry for having us and to our producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us five-star reviews. So you've got to review us (laughs) if you want to hear Marcel artfully rearrange her vocal cords to produce something that sounds like confidence. Well, thanks this week to Vamp <laughs> and to Emma D. Friesen. I'm going to make your pronunciation of that first username my new ringtone. <laughs> if you want to hear even more from us, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash please to check out the many many exciting forms of bonus content available to you. Special thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon for making this whole project possible. Without you, we would literally not be doing this. So who saved whom? (laughs) On our next episode, we're continuing our discussion of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire with a whole new focus. But until then... Later, witches.